Welcome back. I hope you had a good Labor Day weekend. You were able to get some semblance of rest throughout the week with the abbreviated week for some of us. Last week, Pastor Burke introduced a verse-by-verse walk through the book of 2 Peter, where he discussed the sufficiency of God's power for um, life and for godliness. So building off of this particular foundation, Peter narrows in his focus on the trustworthiness of the account that was given by the eyewitness apostles. And that's what we're going to be focusing and directing our time on this morning, looking to him Again, this was written in the context of a barrage of false teachings intent on drawing God's people away from the true gospel. That first section makes it very clear. It was confronting these false teachers and these false teachings. The next natural question one might have, if Peter is standing there saying, don't listen to all these false teachings, listen to me, the question to follow would be, why should we listen to you? (laughs) Why should we listen to you, Peter? Peter wasn't the only one who had, quote, opinions on the application of the Old Testament. Why are so many others still waiting on the promised Messiah? Peter wasn't the only one who had, quote, thoughts on end times. If Jesus is really coming, why isn't he here yet? And Peter wasn't the only one who had, quote, a sense of justice. How can a God who claims to be good send people to hell? For preaching purposes, some passages of Scripture are ripe with application. We've seen that in our walk through First and Second Peter. Be hospitable. What's the application there? Go do it. <laughs> he just says it plainly. Go be hospitable. Or in our, other, in our other walks through the series, we see some passages where narrative intersects with our own life as we walk through particular words from our passage in first, our second Peter chapter one, we saw narratives like Solomon's narrative that intersect with our life and show us how we are to praise God more, how we ought to conform to the image of Christ more closely. And then some passages are so rich with doctrine that it actually does the text an injustice if we simply overlook the various depths of meaning contained therein. So this morning, we're gonna break out our exegetical shovel and get to work digging. Did you bring your exegetical shovel with you this morning? I promise as we dig, we're going to find some gold along the way there. So please open up, if you have not already, to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 16 as we walk through God's Word together. Again, that's 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. That's going to be on page 138 of the back section of the Bibles, if you're using the one in the chair back in front of you. This passage is a continuation of our current series, Growing in Grace and Knowledge. Growing in Grace and Knowledge. And to prepare us a bit for the passage we are going to be walking through this morning, I figured it'd be worthwhile to walk through the five fundamentals, the five classical fundamentals of Christianity, being as our ripe with doctrine passage this morning deals with two of these five. So let's review what these five fundamentals of the Christian faith are before getting into our passage, again, as it deals with two of them. We believe as Christians in the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture. In other words, we believe that it is inspired by God. Men were carried along by the Holy Spirit and and wrote as a result of his dictation. And we also believe that it is inerrant. In other words, no error is found in it. We are to follow it as it is in terms of authority. We also believe in the deity of Christ. We believe that Jesus is himself God. 
We believe in the virgin birth of Jesus. We believe that he was born of the Holy Spirit and and Mary was a virgin and that is relevant to our Christian walk today. We believe in the substitutionary atoning work of Christ on the cross. We believe in, and why would we sing the song we just sang if we did not believe that it was Jesus in my place on that cross in substitution for my sin? Jesus wasn't hanging there for his sin. We believe that he was hanging there for my sin because the God, flawless Jesus, paid the penalty on my behalf. And lastly, we believe in the physical resurrection and the personal bodily return of Christ on this earth. We believe that after he died, he rose three days later and he is reigning now, waiting for his bodily return where he will come back. He will reign on this earth and usher his kingdom once and for all, as we'll even read a little bit about in the time to come. Why are these five facets fundamental? What makes them fundamental or foundational? Because you can't reasonably be a Christian without being convinced of each item down the list. They're also called first-tier matters, as Al Mohler says. In other words, they're of the utmost importance and significance. We can talk about dispensationalism versus covenantalism, cessationism versus continuationism. We can talk about Arminianism versus Calvinism, so on and so forth, and still enjoy Christian fellowship with one another. Those aren't first-tier issues. Not so with these, with these lists, with this particular list. For instance, if you don't believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, then you have an authority outside of God's Word that you're basing all of your conclusions off of. Your supposed authority has has said that the authority uh, uh, presumed by you is... uh, that God's word is not authoritative. There, ergo, you are working off of a different authority. We can't be talking on the same plane because my authority says Jesus is God. He came to live the perfect life, died the substitutionary death, and he alone reigns as king over this world and and the world to come. And, And there are incongruencies between the two of those there. It's hard to argue that you're a Christian if you don't believe in that. And if you don't believe Jesus is God, then his sacrifice on the cross was insufficient and you couldn't sing that last song we just sang because you are still dead in your sins because you don't have a sufficient sacrifice to atone for your sins. We could go down the list and see if you falter or fail in one of these, then you, it's hard to argue that you are in fact a Christian. That's why passages like this are so vital and essential to extract the rich doctrine therein and to apply it directly to our life. So this morning we're gonna be talking about hope in two of these facets, the promised return of Jesus. So that would be the last one. We are, we are trusting and we firmly believe that Jesus is coming again and hope in the inspired word. We believe it is inspired and authoritative for our lives. Our passage will deal with the first and the last fundamental of the faith. So please follow along as I read again 2 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 16. It says this, For, in other, in other words, a continuation from the argument that he was making last week that Pastor Burke had begun, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales. When we made known to you, again, we saw from last week, Pastor Burke was talking about the word known is over and over and over in that passage. They're speaking from knowledge. We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's giving a nod to the incarnation there. Jesus came in power and he did, in fact, come. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such, uh, such an utterance as this 
was made by him, the majestic glory, which is a name for God the Father. He said this from heaven, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now the question is when, what reference is he pulling out there? Is he pulling out the baptism where God the Father spoke from heaven? Or is he talking about the transfiguration, the two points in Jesus' earthly ministry where God the Father gave testimony of the sufficiency of Christ? And we'll find out where he's talking about right now. 18, and we ourselves heard this utterance from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So he's talking about the transfiguration there. That will be important as we move on. So we have the prophetic word, that word that you are holding in your hands right now. We have the prophetic word made even more sure to which you do well to pay attention. Look closely. As to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, pay attention. This is totally significant. No prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. This is, I'm utterly convinced, the word of the Lord. And that's where we get inerrancy from right there as well, an inspiration. God himself spoke. And um, with the time we have remaining, we're going to look at three positive arguments as to why we can have that faith and that trust in the Bible's testimony and the hope therein. The first point that comes up in our passage is that we, we can trust the book in our hands because it is eyewitness testimony, because it is eyewitness testimony. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand, and it's, you're not going to die if you raise your hand, okay? So raise your hand if you have heard this name before in your life. You're familiar with who this person is. Neil Armstrong. Go ahead and raise your hand if you've heard of that name. Yes, everyone. What is Neil Armstrong famous for? For going to Purdue, right? That's what he's, Neil Armstrong is famous for going to Purdue. No, he was the first man to walk on the moon. So Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. And what a claim that would be. It certainly would beat all other travel boasting. And it would almost be unbelievable if it weren't true that he did, in fact, walk on the moon. But listen to what Peter says of a greater claim. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of God, (laughs) of the Lord Jesus Christ. What a claim that is. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Imagine for a moment, Neil Armstrong was still alive, and he happens to be sitting in the same class that you were at in none other than the Purdue University. The professor, who was born well after the Apollo 11 landing, goes on to say what many of us have suspected from childhood, that the surface of the moon is made out of cheese. So he is, he's dead convinced it's made out of cheese, and he, here are the various reasons why I'm convinced the moon is made out of cheese. As delightful as that may sound, and as much of a cash cow as that would be in the future, Neil stands up and declares, though I wish it were true, it's just made out of regular old moon dust. Well, you as a spectator to all of this have a decision to make. Am I going to trust the learned professor who has as many degrees as Celsius, or am I going to believe the guy who walked on the moon? Which one am I going to believe? The guy who studied it or the guy who's walked it? And do you know there are far more erroneous and far more consequential arguments and claims made today? I remember in college, a debate broke out against the president of just, first off, it was just some guy, some random guy, and then the president of Iowa State's uh, atheist society right there. 
And uh, the atheists kept denying the existence of Jesus. And I don't mean like we just sang to him because he's alive and we can pray to him and talk to him. I mean, he did not believe that there was a guy named Jesus who walked on the earth 2,000 years ago. He was convinced of that. So he wouldn't even give ground to that. Though I was only a spectator and, and was not involved in the debate, I wanted so badly to ask him this. What year is it? And then it was the year 2008. What year is it? And then ask him, what did that number come from? Doesn't it seem arbitrary? It's the year 2008. Well, how do we measure number these, these days, brothers and sisters? Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. So to continue, the man who prompted us to alter the way we view time itself, you don't actually believe 2,000 years later that he ever even existed? I didn't even know that was an option to not believe that. I thought it was a given. I think there's more evidence that Jesus walked this earth than you could prove I am standing before you right now. Like books have been written about him. Time was changed as a result of him. It is undeniable that Jesus walked the earth. Tell me the moon is made out of cheese before you try to convince me Jesus didn't walk the earth. But the people who were spectators in that time of that debate had a decision as well. Trust this guy who had been raised up by his peers to be the president of the atheist society, who was very learned, he was incredibly smart, and his take on Jesus. Trust him or believe the guy whose name I don't even remember, who was simply relying on the word, who was trusting in that eyewitness account. Peter was getting similar pushback. If you look at your passage, especially in verse 16, he says, um, the pushback he was getting is you're just following cleverly devised tales, stories for, for weak people who need some sort of hope in a life to come because life is so hard here. Well, first off, we see that when his response, he says, it's not an I, but we. We were not following clever, cleverly devised tales, but we were eyewitnesses. He's referring there to the apostles, those who were with Jesus during his earthly ministry. That would be, for us today, the Neil Armstrongs of our argument. I was there, I know what happened, and here's my testimony as a result. And the apostles didn't just believe Jesus existed. They talk about the power in the coming of Jesus Christ. And they write about what Jesus did in addition to what Jesus was going to do based on their testimony. And to begin, Peter appeals to being an eyewitness of the transfiguration. He began by making a passing reference to the earthly ministry of Jesus, his coming in power, and now he points to a specific instance of that earthly ministry, the transfiguration. He says that in 17 and 18, for when he received honor and glory from the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So as we discuss the transfiguration, it's worth asking the question, what is a transfiguration to begin? Well, we'll quote the passage in a bit, but a transfiguration, the transfiguration was an isolated time in Jesus' ministry where he momentarily assumed his glorified state while with Peter, James, and John on the mountain. They got a glimpse of what Jesus was about to look like after he would go to Jerusalem, die on a cross, be raised three days later, and then 40-some days later, ascend on high. They got a glimpse of what that Jesus, the glorified Jesus, would look like. That was the transfiguration. And no special effects or uh, tricks could fake what they were witness to at that time. It'd be easier to prove that the moon landing was faked than to pull off the transfiguration, though I'm sure no one denies that happened. And during that time, when Jesus was in that state, 
the Father, when he was in this glorified state and they were seeing this, the Father testified from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So they saw the glorified Jesus. They heard the verifying testimony from heaven, from God the Father. That's quite a testimony. But where's it all leading to? What's Peter trying to prove here? In part, he's trying to prove the close connection between the transfiguration and the second coming. Now, these might seem like non sequiturs here. You might be like, what does Jesus being momentarily put into his glorified state have to do with he's going to return at an indisclosed time in the future? What do these two have to do with one another? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the three writers of the Synoptic Gospels, recount the transfiguration, but they lead into this narrative, though it took place six days after this discussion, they lead into this narrative with Jesus talking about the topic of his second coming. So pay careful attention to the, the discussion coming into the transfiguration narrative. Matthew says it like this, for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What's he talking about? He's talking about what Jesus is gonna do when he comes again. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then six days later, again, it was a short period of time, but still time had lapsed. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured. There's our word. He was transfigured before them. And what was his appearance like? What did Jesus look like? His face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. So bear in mind light as we continue through this whole process. Light is a significant part of our passage in Second Peter this morning, and it's a big part of the transfiguration as well. And then behold, a voice out of the clouds said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So there is the validation of Christ. And one of the things we notice, again, in Second Peter, Peter is writing in the context of false teachers seeking to pull away the people of God. False teachers will always present two things. They'll present a false authority and they'll present a false hope. This is what you should trust in and this is what we're working towards. And this is what Jesus, this is what God the Father says from heaven. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. Who are we to look to? How does he close? God the Father closed this statement. He says, listen to him. That's your authority. Let me pause and point something out before we move on and even go back a slide. Some people may struggle with that first portion. When Jesus comes, he'll repay every man according to his deeds. Some may not like that. There are some who don't like the idea of a God who would punish sinners, even to the point where they would face an eternity in hell. My reply commonly is this. Be far more shocked that the very God we have so eternally offended would himself take that punishment for all who would call upon his name. That should be the shocking aspect of this whole story. We shouldn't be shocked by justice. God has put justice in the heart of every man and woman according to Romans chapter two. You see it every time an injustice is perceived in front of your face. If you see someone stealing something, you want the perpetrator caught and you want the goods restored to the individual who was perpetrated. Justice resides in your heart and you know it. Justice is there. We should be amazed at the apparent injustice of the offended party he who was offended, becoming the punished party so that the offending party may go free. That should trigger our sense of justice. And if that's where you find yourself this morning, aghast 
that the God of all creation would punish wickedness, shocked by that. Instead of finding fault with him, see the fault in yourself. Understand that you have done more than enough to earn the sentence of hell. I have done more than enough to earn a sentence of hell. For a sin against an eternal being demands an eternal punishment. But then see that Jesus, the one who Peter testifies about, the one that God the Father testifies about from heaven, see this Jesus took that sin upon his cross and paid for it in full. This is no cleverly devised story that we're talking about this morning. This is a gospel of eternal hope that we discuss. So looking back to our message, we see that Mark's uh, gives an even, even briefer account of this transfiguration. Jesus was saying to them, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Again, talking about the second coming, he recounts six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, John, brought them up on the high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured before them. You see the connection there. And then Luke likewise makes this right, running into the into the transfiguration narrative, he says, but I say to you, truthfully, there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Part of the goal of this transfiguration, Jesus being glorified before their eyes, as each of these synoptic gospels points out, was that it served as a foretelling of what Jesus' second coming would look like. Peter, by mentioning it in his second epistle, where we're at this morning, is pointing his readers to the hope that is to come through the valid testimony of the apostles. Again, he's saying, trust our authority, eyewitnesses, and look to the actual valid hope that is to come of Jesus' coming. As Pastor Burke mentioned last week, Peter was writing in large part as a response to these false teachers in this false teaching that had become rampant. Many authoritative figures had conflicting beliefs about who Christ was and where hope resided. The same is certainly the case today. Countless respectable people, from the staunch atheists that we encountered at Iowa State's campus to those who would call themselves pastor, and everyone in between have, set, have a set of beliefs that come into conflict with the eyewitness testimony as recounted in the word of God. Their hope is not in the second coming of Christ. So their authority isn't in God's word and their hope is not in the second coming of Christ. And how could it be? That's when punishment for those who would contradict the living God will come to pass. Peter is trying to convince each of us, not only is our testimony valid, but our hope in Christ is sure. So where is your hope, Christian friend? Is your hope placed in the coming of Jesus? Do you trust God's word and look for his return? There should be evidence in your life that you believe this particular statement and an evidence that exists in Persis regardless of your external circumstances. You could be going through a season of flourishing in your life or you could be going through a season of intense suffering and still because of the the firmly placed hope that you have in your life, utter this sentence. In the end, Jesus will come to make all things right. And that's more than enough for you. Regardless if I'm suffering, in the end, Jesus will come. He'll make all things right. When I'm away from my wife, Alexandra, whom I love dearly, what do I want from a relational perspective more than anything? What do I want when I'm away from Alexandra? 
I want to be reunited with her, rejoin with her. Actually, um, Alexandra hosted our women's retreat just, uh, la- just yesterday is when it, when it happened. We were away from each other for like 24 hours, and it's kind of sad, but when we finally got back after 24 hours, we're like, oh, I miss you so much. But we're just crazy about each other. We don't like not being in each other's presence. And anyone who is in love, they just want to be with the other person. And that's basic stuff for the Christian as well. We want Jesus to return because he is all we really want. We want him back because we want to be with him. Eventually, my children are going to grow old and they're going to move away. The house I live in will get torn down. The comforts I enjoy will be stripped away, whether by time or by circumstance. Only one thing can remain. And praise God, it's the only one thing that really does matter. So, We can trust God's word because it is eyewitness testimony. The second reason we can trust the Bible's testimony is because it is prophetic testimony. It is eyewitness testimony. It is prophetic testimony. We especially see this in verse 19 of our passage. I'm going to ask you to do something a little right brainy. So for those who are more like analytical, just bear with me and and do the exercise anyhow, okay? I want you to pull up a blank canvas in your mind, or it can be a Word document if you are more uh, left brain. I want you to pull up a blank canvas in your mind, and I want you to pull out your, your various watercolors. And because of what Peter is doing, I want you to paint the picture that Peter is seeking to paint in this passage. And it is gorgeous. It is gorgeous. So pull out that canvas, bring out your watercolors, let's paint. So we have this prophetic word, made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to, okay, here's where you break out the paint, as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you have it placed? You've got the dark back setting. You've got this lamp shining, illuminating quite a bit of it until, so here we have a bit of a shift in your painting. We've got this lamp shining in a dark back setting until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. All of a sudden, the, the canvas is flooded with light, flooded with color. The prophetic word that Peter is referencing here is pointing to Old Testament passages foretelling the coming of Jesus. It was reliable before Jesus took on flesh 2,000 years ago. We know that because what did Jesus use when he was pointing back to the word of God, the authoritative word of God? He was using these Old Testament passages. So the word of God was authoritative 2,000 years ago. How much more reliable is it since the apostles were able to see those specific prophecies coming to fruition, eye testimony right before their face into stark fruition? In other words, this eye testimony doesn't just serve to validate the ministry of Christ, but it allows the Christian to confidently look at the Old Testament as the infallible word of God, as well as the New Testament to be foundational for that and God's word the same. I can read Romans and I can read Leviticus. It has the same author and conclude that. We'll talk more about Romans and Leviticus later, but we see that the transfiguration proves that there is a second coming. We saw earlier there was a clear relationship between the transfiguration and Jesus' second coming. Matthew, Mark, and Luke each cue up the transfiguration narrative with a promise of his coming. And this gives us confidence that he will, in fact, return for those who are his. I hope that your confidence as well as your hope is firmly grounded in that. And this prophetic word that Peter is speaking about is not to be neglected. Instead, we must pay careful attention to it. So, Pull out that painting you just drew. I'm sure it's beautiful. So pull out that painting. We're going to look at it. By way of reminder, he says, so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining 
in a dark place. That little lamp shining in a dark place. As I mentioned before, there are countless false teachers who would come into contradiction with God's word. Do you know what these false teachers are? They are false lights. They're false lights. Again, it is indisputable that we have a backdrop of darkness within this world. The fall of mankind has put out a, a dark backset. There is sin, suffering, and Satan that are pervasive throughout our world. But these false teachers are false lights. Jude describes them as such. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars. What's a star supposed to do? Give out light. A star is to give out light. What is their end? For whom the black darkness, that seems to be a contradiction, doesn't it? The end of these stars is the black darkness has been reserved forever. What does light do? What is it supposed to do? It may be more helpful to think about what we lack when we are in darkness. In the dark, we have no perception of where things are. We don't have any idea what's around us. We don't know where we're going. We don't know how to get there. For a more innocuous example, recount a time when you stubbed your toe or stepped on something hard when you were trying to navigate a room in the dark. Each one of us has done it. Don't say you haven't. When we're trying to get somewhere in the dark, we stub our toe, we step on something we ought not. I recount a time when I was in college. I was in a fraternity, and we, lived in, we slept in cold airs, so it's just a room full of bunk beds. And because so many people slept in it, you couldn't just like have alarms go off, flip on the light whenever you wanted to. My friend and I in the fraternity decided our junior year, we're going to try out for the Iowa State football team. I don't know how we came to that conclusion, but we're like, let's go for it. Let's see if we can get in. So at 4.30 or 4.45, whenever it was in the morning, my little buzzing alarm went off, meaning I got to get up, but I can't flip on the light switch. I just got to hop out of my top bunk. Unbeknownst to me, the night before, my bunkmate, who was below me, had done quite a bit of work on his bunk bed, which apparently, I found out very quickly, required a hammer. So I jumped out of the bunk bed and landed directly on the hook of the hammer, and my foot just, my sock was filled with blood. It was just, it was a mess. It was a, and that's what I blame for not making the Iowa State team. So if you look at the roster back in, you know, 2009, 2010, you won't see Stefan Nitschke on there. It's because of the hammer, okay? That's what I'm going to point to. But regardless, when we seek to navigate rooms or spaces in darkness, what inevitably happens? We don't see the obstacles or the dangers that are in our way. We need light in order to navigate darkness. But for an example far more realistic to our passage, think of a more dire illustration. Think of your canvas. We are barreling through life at a breakneck speed, through this darkness. We're barreling through life. The course is riddled with obstacles and dangers, and there's a clear end for each one of us, death leading into eternity. That is our current circumstance. We need light. False teachers, like wandering stars, give off a light that it presents only a partial picture of its surroundings. Obviously, the closer it adheres to the truth from God's word, the brighter it will appear. But since it is a false light, it always leads to false endings. Not so for the Bible. God's word is a lamp unto my feet, a light unto my path, according to Psalm 119. Jesus in John 9 claims to be the light of the world. He says, I am that lamp. The prophet Micah, when he was dwelling in darkness, looked to the Lord as his light in Micah 7, 8. 
And David, who within his dark barreling through life faced an incredible amount of hardships, said this of the Lord, you, O Lord, light my lamp. The Lord, my God, illumines my darkness. What's the application, brothers and sisters? I know we're in a passage that's ripe with doctrine and it's good to seek to mind its depths, but what is our application this morning? The question is obvious. What is illuminating your life in this darkness? What are you looking to? Are you allowing the word of God to function as the standard by which you view and navigate life? Or are the contradictory theories, the false lights guiding you? The surest way of letting anyone know that you have no idea what it says in the Bible is this. The reason you give for not reading your Bible is you believe you already know what's in it. Do you believe that? If you're convinced, I don't read my Bible because I already know what's in that, then that tells me and everyone around me, you don't actually know what's in it. I, this came into uh, stark reality by way of illustration. A number of years ago, when I was doing some community counseling, there was a person who was literally on the genius scale. He was classified as a genius, and he was coming uh, for counseling. Do you know what point in his homework he struggled with the most? Getting into God's word. And the reason he continually gave me week over week over week was, I already know what's in it. I already know what's in there. What was his life filled with? Darkness. What was he looking to? He was squinting his eyes, trying to see in darkness of his own power and volition. I'm smart enough. I'll be able to navigate life. I know what light is. I can see all the obstacles surrounding me. I can navigate this. He needed to look to the lamp. Additionally, trust the pastor who says he has all of everything figured out in this book in the same way you trust a husband who says he has his wife all figured out which is to say, don't trust that pastor. <laughs> we are still discovering, there are still books being written about this book. We are st- there's dissertations being written. There are a whole uh, series of theologies being written about this book. We're still mining its depths. It is living and active. It, heaven and earth will pass away. My word will never pass away, Jesus says. So we cannot exhaust this. Far be it for me to think I can exhaust what is to be found in this book in my short tenure on this earth and, and same goes with my wife. Far be it for me to think I can exhaust what is to be known about my wife and my short marriage on this earth. We are to look to God's word and trust that I don't know everything that's in it. I need to look to the lamp. You may tire of the application, read your Bible, but why do you suppose it comes up so often? Do your pastors try to find it in the text, even if it's not there? Are we only picking passages to preach on that talk about read your Bible? Or is it possible that the Lord is constantly bringing it up? One of the ways to test what illumines your life is this. Do you know what God's word has to say about your marriage? And would an outsider looking in say that is a biblical marriage? If you don't know what God's word has to say about any aspect or facet of your life, it goes to show you're not looking to the lamp to illumine that aspect of your life. What about your work? As you go on through the mundane, the drudgery of work, is it God's word that informs and dictates your work? And would somebody from the outside say, that is a biblical worker right there? How about your rest? 
Does the word of God inform your rest, your friendships, your conversations? Is your tongue, as James 3 talks about, a fire lit from hell itself, or is it sanctified by the Lord Jesus Christ? Is it used to build up or tear down? Is your tongue informed by God's word? And would somebody listening say the same? What about your conduct? What about how you navigate your trials? Is it directed, looking, focused, fixated on the word of God to illumine the path leading forward? Is every aspect of your life illumined by God's word? What about your time alone when nobody is looking? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. You have light in your hands, brothers and sisters. Don't look to darkness or false lights to guide you. We need it until he returns. We are to pay attention to this prophetic word until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. The word of God is awesome. Those who love Jesus know this to be the case. We love to be in God's word. We love to commune with God through reading. And that's what makes the end of verse 19, rather, seem almost irreverent when we read it. The word of God is this lamp that allows us to see our surroundings in the dark, but there is a light that's coming by comparison that will absolutely bust that out, that will shine like the morning star. We have a room in my house that face, the windows face east. It has a series of, of windows there. And at night, if I don't flip on the switch of that room, I can see virtually nothing. I'm stubbing my toe and wandering about. But in the morning, when the sun is just coming above that horizon, I'll open up the shades to that window. Do you know what effect having that light switch turned on has at 8 o'clock in the morning on a cloudless day? Virtually nothing. Click it on, click it off. doesn't matter because the sun is shining through those windows. Right now, we know Jesus through his word. But a day is coming, and we can see it like the glow before a brilliant sunrise, when Jesus will be with his people and make himself known to us in a way that is currently unimaginable. John talks about this in his first epistle. He says this, right now we are children of God. We are adopted by him. We are made to be in his family. And yet, it has not appeared as yet what we will be. There is that unimaginable aspect of what it will be like when we are finally with Jesus. We know that when he appears, again, we know we have this confidence based on the eyewitness testimony and the prophetic testimony of God's word. We know this to be the case and our hope is fixed on this. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. It's hard to imagine a world that will be utterly devoid of death, pain, suffering, sorrow, loss, sin, regret, all bad things. Even more difficult to imagine an existence where the word of God will seem like a lamp in comparison to the surrounding glory of Christ. But until the day that the morning star dawns, we need to look to the lamp of God's word to light our way in this dark world. And the final reason why we can trust the Bible's testimony is because it is the Holy Spirit's testimony. It is of the Holy Spirit's testimony. The testimony of eyewitnesses is powerful, much like Neil Armstrong saying that the surface of the moon is made out of dust. The testimony of a prophetic witness is even more validating, like being handed a sample of the moon's surface for you to look at and touch. See, this is not cheese. But The testimony of the Holy Spirit is more powerful than being transported to the surface of the moon itself. Even if you were able to survive somehow that ordeal, you would be able to tell this is not cheese. But 
Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. It'd be one thing to have an eyewitness account of what Jesus did while on earth. It'd be one thing for me, if I was there during that time, to jot down some notes and say, this is what Jesus said, this is what Jesus did. But to have testimony of God himself puts all else to shame. Second Peter 1, 20 through 21, is often considered one of the most vital passages regarding the validity and the inerrancy of God's word and inspiration of it. Because if it's true, and I believe wholeheartedly that it is, then the book that you're holding and no other book is God's word. How can this be? Because the Bible is not a product of human will. Peter is building off of everything he's already said. We can trust that God penned the Old Testament because look at what it perfectly said about Jesus. And we can trust of what it says of things to come because of the power in the coming of Christ, because of this incarnation and their, eye te- their eyewitness testimony. And time would fail us to rehearse all of these Old Testament prophecies regarding Jesus. But if we were to, our conclusion would be this. No human, when we look at the prophecy and the fulfillment of this, no human could have thought, guessed, or dreamt any of this up. The perfect accuracy of each prophecy shows that the one holding the pen is none other than God himself. The Bible is a product of the Holy Spirit moving in authors. 2 Peter 1 gives us the detailed mechanics of what Paul discussed in 2 Timothy chapter 3, another part that talks about the sufficiency of God's word. 2 Timothy 3, starting in 16, says, all scripture is inspired by God. Now we see the mechanics. Men carried along by the Holy Spirit wrote of what, of, according to God's dictation. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be complete, adequate, equipped for every good work. You and I get things wrong all the time. And if you want to tell me that you don't, let me see your March Madness bracket from last time. I don't think anyone got 100% on that one. God, on the other hand, doesn't make any mistakes. It is a perfect light. His is a perfect light, illuminating our surroundings in a perfect way. Those existing within darkness cannot accurately describe their surroundings. You know this experientially. It would be as though you were led into a pitch black room asked to provide a painstaking detail uh, simply by looking. So imagine I bring you into a room you've never been to. It's pitch black, and I tell you, describe the texture of the carpet. What's the color on the wall? What are the objects, and what are they like? You wouldn't be able to do it because it's pitch black. You can't see anything in there. But the one who created the room is able to perfectly describe every aspect of it, shedding light for the rest of us. That in itself is its own validation of the efficacy of God's word. Pragmatically speaking, how do I know God's word to be God's word? It's perfect on how it describes the human condition. Time-tested, isn't it? It's perfect in its description of historical events and all other things pertaining to life and godliness. In other words, it could only have been written from an outside-looking-in perspective, and God alone bears that vantage point. He alone is seeing outside-looking-in, talking about that. But beyond that, we know the Holy Spirit is the ultimate author because the whole story fits together. Peter, through the Holy Spirit, is trying to convince us that the Word of God is something that we can place our hope in. Beyond that, he's trying to highlight our need to navigate our lives based on what it teaches. So why is he talking about the second coming of Christ? 
Why is he discussing that? And I know this is the last blank, which a lot of times makes us turn our brains off as the HVAC turns on. But I want you to pay attention. This is very significant. Why is he talking about the second coming of Christ when he's talking about the validity of Scripture? That doesn't, seem, doesn't it seem beside the point? He's talking about it because it all fits together. There's a meta-narrative running throughout God's word. Starting in Genesis chapter one, God is a creator bringing chaos into order. God is the redeemer with the proto-euangelion promising that there will be one who will come who will crush the head of Satan though it strikes his heel. There is one who is coming who will fulfill all the prophecies running throughout the Old Testament. And then Jesus did come and then he did promise that he will come to bring his bride back into culmination and consummation once more into eternity. There is a meta-narrative running throughout all of scripture. Moreover, the second coming is this climax of the story. The event that every Christian is grounding their hope in. Again, our authority is in God's word. Our hope is in his second coming. And it makes sense that Peter would point to this event as the validating reason to trust in God's word. And this is to say nothing of the congruency from one book to the next. The indwelling spirit confirms to the Christian that he, God, is the author of all 66 books that comprise God's word. We, we have that same natural intuition. We know an author when we hear one. I'll, I'll try to describe it here. This particular author writes, then new troubles came from above and below, a scritz at my neck and a scrink at my toe. And now I was really in trouble, you know. The rocks and the quail, the scritz and the scrink. I had so many troubles, I just couldn't think. Though I doubt none of you have read the book, or very few of you have read the book, I had trouble in getting to Sola Salu. It wouldn't take long to guess that the author of this particular book is himself, Dr. Seuss. We can just tell from our intuition, that's a Dr. Seuss book right there. Romans and Leviticus, by way of content and purpose, have very little in common. But when we read either of them, we know that the author is one and the same. It's the only one who has that external vantage point outside looking in, and it's more distinct of a signature sound than any Dr. Seuss book. So trust in the eyewitnesses. Trust in the eyewitness accounts of Christ, those who lived life with him and sat under his direct teaching. Look to that prophetic word as you would a light in the darkness. Look to that lamp and trust that the divine author of this word is good on his promise. Christ will come back and we will live with him forever in the unimaginable light of his glory. Let's go before God and pray. Father, we thank you that we will one day live with you, those who are in Christ. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in this room who would not yet have bowed the knee to Jesus, have not yet looked to that light that is Jesus, they would do so even right now. They would recognize that when you come again, it would not be good news for them as it stands right now because their sin is still on them and not on the cross. I pray that they would place their faith and trust in you now, transmuting that sin to the cross where you paid and suffered and then you rose again and that one day when you come back, they will be, they will be part of those proceedings. So Father, I pray that you would be with them. For each one of us who have placed our trust in Jesus, who do look to the lamp of your word to navigate each aspect of our life, I pray that we would look so faithfully that each one of us wouldn't be distracted by wandering stars who would say, look here, this is where light is. This is how to navigate the darkness. No, we would look to your word and we would walk faithfully according to what you have called us to. We love you and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.